Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, four years ago, a movie called Crazy Rich Asians made waves in Hollywood. So your family is rich? We're comfortable. That is exactly what a super rich person would say. These people aren't just rich. They're crazy rich. Now you really should have told me that you're like the Prince William of Asia. That's ridiculous. Much more of a Harry. <laughs> The award-winning film featured an all-Asian cast set in a modern love story, the first of its kind made in Hollywood in over 25 years. The movie signaled a major step forward in the film industry. What at the time looked to be a small pop cultural phenomenon has produced a movement in entertainment media, everything from blockbuster hits starring Asian superheroes to record-breaking TV series that embrace Asian customs and languages. The representation is certainly not perfect, but the enthusiastic response from fans has inspired both Asian American and Hollywood communities to demand more diversity in the industry. We're spending the full hour talking all about Asian representation in film and television, plus what we're looking forward to watching in 2022. Joining me now, Elena Kreef, Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Wellesley College. She specializes in Asian American visual history in photography, film, and popular culture. And Jenny Korn, Fellow and the Founding Coordinator of the Race and Media Working Group at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Welcome all. Hey, y'all. I am so glad to have you back. I am just taken with the fact that we started this conversation in 2018 just to sort of get a a sense of the temperature then. It was very hot and exciting. And I thought it's best to start this conversation off quoting you back to you. So here you are in 2018 (laughs) talking about what you hope the success of Crazy Rich Asians would do in terms of representations in film. Well, when I talk about cultural moment with Asian American representation in Hollywood, I think about 25, 26-year cycles, because we were in a moment like this once upon a time in the early 90s when the Joy Luck Club came out, and I remember that really, really well, and all of the excitement and the hopes that so many people had for what they thought would be a watershed moment that never happened. And even before that, slightly before my time... uh, when uh, Flower Drum Song came out in 1961. That was another watershed moment with a lot of high hopes. So Hollywood creates dog years for Asian American film and popular culture about once every 26 years. We have a moment like this, and we're in the third wave. Well, I think that um, the fact that this movie not just got made, but also did so well in terms of sales uh, across the globe does speak to a hunger Um, for Asians and Asian Americans to see ourselves on the big screen, uh, both in its positive portrayals, but also uh, this movie has some problematic portrayals as well. Um, But the fact is, this is what we have right now. And so um, not only are people who uh, identify with the same race as me, but people who aren't Asian went to go see this movie and are excited about it. And I love that kind of solidarity. 
So, now that you've heard what you said a few years ago, <laughs> um, did it go the way you thought it was going to go? What do, you, what do you think about this moment when we're talking about blockbuster films with Asian superheroes and pretty much majority casts in some of those films and big TV series? Elena? Thank you. Uh, thank you for torturing us with voices from the past, uh, Asian August 2018. We were talking about whether or not there would be a wave of representation. I got to say, with hindsight, I think we are happily still in the water. And if we've come a long way, baby, since 2018, I would say things are, things are looking really great. This has been a really great year. We have had a wealth of Asian, Asian American representation across all film genres. Um, I had so much ground to cover just to just to get ready to jump back into a conversation with you guys. So I'm very happy. I don't think 2018 was a fluke. I think it opened the gate. And how about you, Jenny? Yes, I felt very eager and excited and affirmed as we began to plan for the various movies we were going to cover and the shows because there were so many um, that either feature Asians as lead characters or in some cases secondary, even third, tertiary characters. I am excited because there's a lot to celebrate, a lot of firsts are still happening um, even this year, and at least they are happening. It means we're breaking new ground. Of course, along with clapping, there will also be critiquing. And that's, I think, uh, very fun for people who are focused on Asian American representations in the media because we want to take the time to celebrate, and we also want to push forward with our critiques. And hopefully folk who are in the movie production business will hear what we have to say. And in another four years from now, we'll be talking about um, some of the changes that we hoped for and predicted actually being realized. All right, let's start with Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, featuring Simu Lu and Aquafina. I should also probably mention that my name's not technically Sean. What? What is it? It's Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi? Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi. Shang. 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 S-H-A-N-G. Shang. Shang? Yeah. You change your name from Shang to Sean? Yeah, I don't. I wonder, yeah. how, I wonder how your father found okay, you. I was 15 years old. <laughs> I love that scene for so many reasons. Um, for people who don't know the film, it's a Marvel superhero film. It has a mostly Asian cast, and it has a lot of uh, background from the comic books, not all of which is great. The characters, however, were in the comic books, and those comic books, I'll remind people, were drawn by a couple of white guys and a couple of, of Jewish guys. And so a lot of stereotypes that we're very familiar with now were built in because that's just what was going on at the time, and people thought that this is how Asian people really were. So I'll start with you, Jenny. What'd you think about Shang-Chi, and did it do the job of both entertaining and representing in the way that you'd like to see? Yes, and uh, is my <laughs> uh, succinct answer, meaning that uh, what I appreciated about um, all the movies and shows we're going to discuss today is the way that they're able to weave Asian, Asian-American identity in ways that are both explicit, but also really subtle. 
Um, an example is when the actual time to show in the movie, Sean taking off his shoes before he enters uh, Katie's home. For those of us who grew up this way, like this is cultural for us. I always have to take my shoes off before I go into my, my home. My parents would actually punish me <laughs> if I did not take my shoes off. Um, subtle, but still instructive for the viewer, for those of us who can identify and say, oh yeah, that's that's my culture too, but also instructive for people who may um, not be familiar with that particular custom to see that that custom is part of Asian identity. Um, a negative though for me would be when Sean is talking about racism, which I think is a good thing, but his response to the racism is not one, particularly now that we're um, in this era of increased attention to anti-Asian racism, uh, uh, his response is not one that I like, um, nor the response of Katie. And that specifically is, um, Sean tells a story about his being called Gangnam Style. And his response to that is, I'm not Korean. Now, that's kind of funny. Like I get he's trying to be lighthearted. And then similarly, Cage's response is, well, I can sing Hotel California lyrics to help defuse uh, racist situations. Again, lighthearted, funny, I get it. But watching this again with this era where actual violence leading sometimes unfortunately to death is happening that's targeting Asians and Asian Americans, I would prefer some sort of response. It's all anti-Asian racism. So we should all be expressing solidarity in fighting against that kind of racism. And I should add, Elena, before you speak, that Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings got a huge response. It stayed at the top of the box office for several weeks. So a lot of people had a chance to be exposed to this. I have to say, thank you, Kim's Convenience Show, for giving us the gift of Simu Liu. <laughs> thank you, thank you, and thank you for the first ever uh, Asian American uh, superhero film. I love that Shang-Chi takes a really old, notorious, orientalist, yellow peril story from Hollywood and literature, the Fu Manchu series, and turns it on its head and tries to create something very different. Um, and, and that is empowering. I, I recognize all of those old yellow peril um, narratives buried in, buried in this Marvel story. So I love this reworking with this Asian and Asian American cast. Also, if you told me in 2018 that Aquafina as Peak Lin, the comic <laughs> relief sidekick in Crazy Rich Asians, would morph into a Golden Globe Awards winner and crossbow-bearing, dragon-killing action star in 2021 in a Marvel uh, superhero film, I would have said you were nuts. I did not <laughs> see that one coming. I thought that Shang-Chi has, has, has a lot going for it. It was very, very rewarding. Absolutely. Now, still in the, in the movie space and in the Marvel superhero space, there's another film called The Eternals. And to a large degree, it had even a broader representation of the Asian diaspora in terms of the cast. So, Jenny, in the past, you've been quite critical of not seeing um, South Asians, for example, you know, a lot of East Asians, but not. And for people just assuming, well, everybody's in one big lump and they're not. But there was quite distinctive uh, differences in the casting. Um, first, let's take a listen, and then I'll ask you all how effective you thought the film was. So this is a cut from The Eternals.
Okay, everyone, that was good. I think we could do 10% better. That was beautiful. Very, very good. Ah! <laughs> My friends from college are here. Perfect timing. Welcome to the set of Shandar Dastane Icarus. You like the costume? We need to talk. Tell the director I have some notes for him. We need to talk to you in private. Oh, I have to get ready for the next scene. Come to my tent, we'll talk there. You guys are gonna love the next scene. I come in on a wire, cause you know, <laughs> I can't fly. <laughs> um, so one of the superheroes is kind of undercover as a, a, a Bollywood star, uh, and you heard him there. Um, what do you think about the film in general and the representation specifically? So we've had our, now our first Asian superhero movie with Shang-Chi, and now we're moving to our first South Asian superhero in Marvel. Um, again, I think this is something to celebrate. Of course, we wish the first would have happened earlier. At least they're happening at all now. I love this combination of Bollywood making it more mainstream to people who watch movies that have been changed from comics into live action, bringing that Bollywood history in not just as part of the background, but also part of the dialogue. So I was, I actually don't watch much Bollywood. So when I was watching the movie and I heard uh, Kingo actually say, Dishoom, I, I stopped, like I, you know, I paused, like, what does that mean? And so this movie, again, talking about how race and ethnicity are being taught through these uh, movies that become mainstream, taught me that Dishoom is a Bollywood uh, sound effect um, for punching. And so I appreciate that. I like learning about different cultures in this subtle, not over, you know, explicitly, this is going to be an educational moment. No, this is like, hey, um, if you're interested, you should go look up what does the shoe mean. And I also appreciate hearing uh, different languages. Oh my goodness! Like I, I really love to hear um, languages other than English in movies. And I know that they speak Hindi um, in this movie. And that's uh, again, it's it's exposing people who uh, really are faithful to the Marvel universe to other cultures. And I think that is very useful and appreciated. A couple of things. The P Pakistani-American actor is Kumail Nanjiani, and he was cast as Kingo in that movie. That's you heard him. And the director and actually the writer of this film is Chloe Zhao, who was the became the first woman to win the Oscar for directing last year for Nomadland. What do you think, Elena? <laughs> I have to tell you, I really wanted to love Eternals, and many people apparently did because this film made a lot of money. I think it was over four hundred million um, at the at the box office. And you guys know I have been singing the praises of Chloe Zhao as the director to watch since we started our conversations. The writer, Nomadland, and even her first film, uh, Songs My Brothers Taught Me. So I'm all in Team Chloe, but Chloe. I cannot forgive you for turning the great Gemma Chan and the great Angelina Jolie into wooden stick figures. I really just, I feel like uh, when I was watching this film, I was thinking, I, how many ways can I count the beautiful tableau of diverse diasporic bodies on the screen? But I thought that Chloe's talent, her brilliance as a filmmaker with her style just is a mismatch for this type of action film. I, I thought it was one big hot mess. I I have to agree. I could not follow it. I honestly do not know what was going on. I do, you know, but and I love Gemma Chan. So I was really mad that she didn't appear to have as much power as some of the other people. Sorry, spoiler for people. <laughs> and, and I was annoyed by that. I love the costumes. I love when they all stood around like in a semicircle and, you know, looked very powerful. 
But I, I, I just, I, I did not get it. And I, I thought I just wasn't smart enough to understand what Chloe Zhao was trying to tell me. <laughs> I, I, okay, so I'm going to have to say that I liked this movie. I think one of the overall kind of philosophical questions is, and I don't think this is a spoiler, but um, the Eternals, their name, means they get to live eternally, like they have immortality. And I think one of the major questions is, how do you spend immortality? Having so many different characters, particularly um, across all the axes of identity, was instructive because you get to see some people plan to use immortality to uh, blend in with the human race, to protect the human race. Some people decide humans don't know how to act in a way that's for their best interests. So there's some paternalism that happens, even some control of the human race. So I actually, I didn't hate this movie. I thought it was okay. You had to be committed (laughs) and had to rewatch this movie to like really try to unpack (laughs) some of the messages. And I I dig all the Marvel DC movies. So I I don't mind watching them over and over. And then in addition to the first that were um, Asian focused, uh, this is also the first openly gay superhero. Yeah, that's true. Fastos. Yeah. Yes. And um, that's amazing. And he happens to be black and um, he happens to be married to a black Muslim uh, who speaks Arabic. And so we not only get our first openly gay superhero, we get our first same sex couple and dun, 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 not a spoiler, first same sex kiss in a Marvel movie. Like I am grateful that this, as uh, Elena mentioned, how a very popular movie that normalizes, you know, black queerness. Mm. All right. <laughs> no, and that character was really pretty interesting. I, I you know, I will note that uh, Chloe Zhao is concerned that because of the gay character and the kiss that the film might be censored overseas. So that's that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you are clearly much smarter than me because I was like, no, no. what are they talking about? I have no idea. So I missed all of the stuff that you just said. Now I feel really dumb. But anyway. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I also want to say, though, like, again, we're celebrating and we're critiquing. So um, Fastos, there was some drama, and I think drama that we that we should mention, if not unpack, which is that um, uh, his character, he is in charge of technology. And so a very interesting ethical question is, who is responsible for technology? And again, yes. this is something, you know, yeah. outside of uh, the movie. Um and the drama was that um, this character realizes that amongst the techno- technological innovations was the atomic bomb. Yes. And so, true. and there were a lot of fans that were angry saying, are you serious? We're going to blame the first gay superhero for Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to kind of mention that, that I, I do think that that criticism is valid. Mm-hmm. Um, and also who... Who is, I mean, you can take this, right? The, this is what Marvel and DC is very good at. You can find real life uh, parallels. So we have um, autonomous vehicles. They're not driven by humans anymore. Um, if, when, and this has already happened, when those accidents occur with those vehicles, who is to blame? Yeah, we're discussing that right now. Yes, exactly. So as I said, there's a lot of deep stuff in there that Jenny has just pointed you to. <laughs> For the rest of us that like it a little simpler, it was hard. It was hard. It was hard. I agree. It was hard. It was hard. Yes. Chloe Chloe Zhao's great genius is to take the stories of ordinary people and turn those stories into pure poetry on the screen. So I think the reason that this film for me is a big misstep is that she's working with not ordinary humans, but Mm. with eternals and immortals. And I feel like she cannot, she can't for me find 
find the heart of those stories. She's great. She's great um, with with the everyday and the mundane. But I felt like her her these immortals were too supersized for her for the type of um, genius that she brings to ordinary storytelling. Too big a story. Too supersized for me, I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Elena Kreef, Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Wellesley College, and Jenny Korn, Fellow at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. And we're talking about Asian representation in Hollywood on the big screen and the little screen. Let's go to the smaller screen. I guess streaming now has made TV bigger than life. And one of the series that I adored and thought made quite a hit in many different ways was The Chair, starring Sandra Oh. People may know her from her Grey's Anatomy role and many other roles. Um, Here she is speaking about her then new Netflix series, The Chair, and the importance of her trailblazing character, Ji Yoon Kim, having an authentic Korean name. I can trace, I feel like, how Hollywood has progressed When I was on Grey's Anatomy for 10 years, the show never addressed people's ethnicity. With the show Killing Eve, I was able to bring a certain aspect of Eve's cultural heritage. But in the chair, when I saw that Dr. Kim's name is is Jiyun Kim, now I can play a character who specifically has a Korean name. And all the characters are going to call her that name correctly. The character is not the host of this show, but (laughs) we move on. (laughs) I love that series. um, And I thought it allowed her to really be the actress that she was in the situation, which is that she is the first Asian woman to be, and the first woman, as it turns out, to be the chair of this English department. And they clearly set her up to fail and how she navigates all of these really tricky things, including many cross-racial concerns. And it's uh, set on a college campus. Beautifully done, I thought. I haven't heard if it's gotten a second series. Um, Have you heard, Elena? And what did you think about it? I am waiting, keeping my fingers crossed that there will be season number two. Uh, I love this series. And I have to tell you that within my own Asian American feminist academic women of color professors network, it was fascinating. The responses were divided right right down the middle in Mm. half. Mm. Half of... Asian American PhD women of color faculty said they hated this show. They couldn't stand its inauthenticity. They couldn't relate to it. It was awful. And they really hated the the disheveled white male love interest played by the Mm. J. J. Duplass. But the other half uh, of the women of color who tuned in said, oh my God, I am Sandra Oh. I am the chair. Uh, It was so familiar and so realistic with the sort of everyday microaggressions in the world of academia. Um, anyway, I, I, I love this show and I, I love everything Sandra O oh touches. I think she wore a t-shirt a few years ago that said it's an honor just to be Asian. I want to wear a t-shirt that says it's an honor just to watch Sandra O. Oh. Mm, excellent. Mm. Jenny, your take. I think the people who are most interested are people in academia, and that's great because you're, you know, talking to a couple of them. Um, what this series does to me is it teaches. It 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 teaches in a way that's very um, uh, not over your head, but kind of like, oh, I, I get it. This is something different that I may not have been exposed to. Examples: uh, the dole ceremony that is reflective of Korean culture. Um, I thought that was beautifully integrated. I thought that lines about why 
uh, Sandra O's carrier did not choose to adopt a Korean child was because the Korean government wouldn't let her right. have a Korean child. That was child. very interesting. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, her daughter, played by a talented actress um, who's both Latina and Asian, through her, we get to learn about Dia de los Muertos. And this is what I really appreciated. Um, this Asian woman in particular is actually depicted as a woman of color. These two are not the same. Mm-hmm. Just because the woman is Asian does not mean that she'll be given lines or be able to act in a way that shows she has solidarity with other communities of color. But in this series, she does. Um, she talks with a younger, untenured Black woman about her journey, about getting tenure, and talking about how I want, like, I, I mean, say Sandro, uh, her character wanting to help her get that tenure. Um, and then, you know, in her personal life, she's talking about how does she honor her daughter's Mexican heritage. I, I love all the intercultural, um, as you mentioned, all the intercultural racial understandings packed within this show, but they should not have, in my in my opinion, uh, named it the chair because the chair doesn't, it doesn't do anything. Like even just that name doesn't, <laughs> it's not exciting. And and I want this, as, as we all three have said, we want a second season. I don't know that's going to happen because I don't think, I don't know that the audience got large enough for it. Well, I, I don't know if it did, but what the chair series I thought did beautifully and what is the often the criticism is that we got to see her fully human, which sounds very hoity-toity, but uh, you get all of her family stuff. Uh, often when we see these characters of color and Asian American characters have more to fight on this because there's even fewer of them than than um, black characters, you know nothing of their of their background. In the old days, this series could be done and we wouldn't know she had a father or a child, a messy boyfriend, um, you know, uh, insecurities, uh, a therapist, all of that. I just thought that is so important. Hello, I have a life and we have lives and we're going on about them. And oh, by the way, we code switch because she code switched at home with her dad. Mm -hmm. um, And then, you know, what she had to do in the office. So Mm -hmm. that to me um, stood out from so much. So so it didn't matter to me that she was on campus. I did think the campus (laughs) stuff was pretty interesting, though, and intriguing. And I don't know that everybody was turned off about it, Jenny. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> and I just say the the one great reason for them to greenlight a season two would be to please bring back Daniel De Kim as the um, as the ex boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody yes. who was watching the show, all eyes were on that little sneak peek of uh, the ex boyfriend. For, forget about the the slovenly white white uh, white boyfriend and colleague. We want Daniel De Kim back. And Kelly, <laughs> one one thing I want to see too this. Con- that you made what is what is brilliant about about Sandra O oh always and and the films that we've been talking about so far is this depiction of these of these Asian characters on film as fully human to uh, they are uh, their humanization in these films are a powerful and I think a poignant reminder that we are living in a moment in the past couple of years where we have seen, as Jenny's pointed out, uh, a rise in extreme acts of anti-Asian hatred and violence. That hatred and violence is based on the dehumanization of Asians and Asian Americans in our country. This is a moment where we need to humanize Asians and Asian Americans across the board in our popular culture, in our consciousness, in film and television and everywhere. I agree with you. All right. Now, um, off to another series, streaming series, that became the number one series that 
you know, has struck people a little bit differently. This is Squid Game. For a while, was the number one watched series. It's quite violent. Um, it has a um, a very meaningful story behind the violence and the sort of um, uh, choreographed violence. I guess it's choreographed violence. Um, and that's really about power and employment and, and little people being treated as they are and, and what happens. And anyway, it's set up in this this horrible little game. But what also came out from Korean speakers, it is a Korean product, that the translation did not match to the dialogue, which of course then changes the meaning significantly. So here is Ju Won Su, as a Korean English professor at Columbia University, providing an example of this messed up translation. In some translations, Korean cursing words are translated into like scumbag, jerk, and idiot. They don't really convey that the harshness of the Korean cursing words, cursing expressions. The word sekki is translated in jerk most of the time, but I don't think it's the right translation. Sekki literally means the baby animal, like a, a baby of any animals. If you do that, you are basically cursing at your mother. So that's the whole idea. But I think it's a little bit more serious than jerk. So I'd like both of you to weigh in on this. Um, is it okay to kind of water this down? Because some people listen to this and say, okay, so it's a jerk. What, what, what difference does it make if it's not as harsh as it should be? Elena? You know, uh, we have never had a Korean film that became a global phenomenon like this. I think Squid Game was being watched by people in something like 90 different countries around around the, the world during this pandemic. And I think uh, it had the, the, the complex challenge of having to do subtitles in 31 different languages for audiences. I think it was dubbed in 13 different languages. The art of uh, translation and subtitling is one laden with minefields and pitfalls. Um, I, I do get all the critiques. I think that uh, if there's a Squid Game season two. And there will be. It has been announced. Go woo! ahead. Yeah. That is outstanding. Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess that, that the, um, the, the, the translation team, the subtitle team is, gonna, is, going, to, is going to work on this. I think that the, the phenomenal global success took everyone by storm. And I don't know if they were prepared with the, with the level of scrutiny they were going to get. Um, I should note that uh, Squid Game won three Golden Globe Awards, including Best TV Drama, earned one of the actors a Supporting Actor Trophy, nabbed three Critics' Choice Awards and a Gotham Award, in addition to becoming the first non-English language series and first Korean series to score a nomination for the Screen Actors Guild Awards for the cast in a drama, actor in a drama series, actress in a drama series, and the stunt ensemble. Go ahead, Jenny. Yes, I mean, Squid Game broke all the records for Netflix. I mean, it is the number one most watched series now, period. I mean, what I appreciate about this is culturally, the games that are chosen are interesting because they're representative of games that are popular of childhood in Korea. And so what that allows the viewers to do is to think about their own childhood. And so I think that 
learning about Korean childhood games was a cultural education, again, that I appreciate. I think the dubbing part is interesting to me because um, let's go back a little bit. You know, uh, some of us, depending on how, how old we are, might remember the martial arts movies um, that were often shown in the late 1970s and 1980s. That dubbing was terrible. Like you could see uh, mouths be closed and dialogue would still keep going. You know what I mean? Like we've, we've come a long way. So I watched it in dubbed in English and I turned the subtitles on. I watch movies in Thai um, because I want to hear Thai. And again, I watch them also in subtitles with English and I'm okay when they don't match because often when they don't match, it's not, the, the distance is not huge. Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break and uh, coming up, more insight about Asian representation in the movies and on the tiny screen or the big screen from our experts. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're continuing our discussion with Wellesley College's Elena Kreef and Harvard's Jenny Korn about Asian representation in the media. Let's pick up from where we left off. I'm going to change a little bit here and move to the funny movies. So I have to say that Love Hard featuring Jimmy O. Yang is just so wonderful. First, let's take a listen to a clip. It was a Christmas movie, really, featuring the comedian Jimmy O. Yang. We'll talk about Jimmy on the other side, but here's a clip from Love Hard. Hey, what are you doing? The hard part is over. Just repel down. Uh-uh. But you already got to the top part. It's nothing. Oh, God, this is how I die. I'm going to die. This is, this is it. This is it for okay, me. Okay, okay, okay. I think I actually know a trick to get you down. You gotta trust me. Trust the guy who catfished me. No, trust the guy that got you up here in the first place. Look, I know you're scared, but you've got this. And I've got you. Well, I agree with the article by Olivia Trufant Wong, who said, Jimmy O. Yang is the romantic lead we've been waiting for. No kidding! <laughs> he was fabulous. The film is great. Um, the simple story is he catfishes a woman on an online dating app, puts a picture of his friend. He's Asian. His friend's Asian. Good-looking guy instead of himself. Uh, the woman gets inspired because they've been having great conversations and flies herself from California, where she lives, to Lake Placid, New York, where he lives, to surprise him for Christmas. And lo and behold, it's not the guy in the picture. And she hangs around and discovers that he's really the real deal. And, you know, we've seen how these things go. There's a big kerfuffle, and then it all ends well in the end. But he just is fabulous. I want to play a clip from Jimmy O. Yang back in 2018. We had him on Under the Radar. At this point, he had filmed Crazy Rich Asians, but he didn't know what the response would be. And he was talking about just how proud he was of being in that film. Here he is. Absolutely. I just shot this movie called Crazy Rich Asians, and that was so exciting. Literally, it's the first movie featuring a full Asian cast. 
in 25 years since Joy Luck Club, first studio movie. So it's very important, and I really hope it does well. And and I just had the greatest experience shooting it. I became so proud, like way more proud, you know, to be Asian, because you see the most beautiful, most talented, funniest Asian people all in one room trying to make something great, you know, and we just felt a nice camaraderie. It wasn't just like I'm the token Asian guy on this show or in this movie. And me, myself, by myself, have to represent all Asians because there's only five of us in all of television. You know, that pressure was off. I can just concentrate on my craft and be an actor because there's a whole spectrum of Asians in this movie. And it was just so fun. It was just such a great experience. I'll add one more thing before you two weigh in. Uh, Jimmy says, of Love Hard, uh, because they decided to have the character have a full life, as he pointed out, four other Asian actors got hired because they had to play his father, his brother, uh, his friend. Um, um, So it was wonderful. Um, I'll start with you, Jenny. What do you think about Love Hard? Um, I, I, I also enjoyed it. There is a lot to make you laugh. There's a great uh, scene at the end that is a recreation of yes. Love Actually. <laughs> yes. um, and I love that. I found his daddy being supportive of um, going to make candles that smell like their grandpa instead of uh, taking over the supply store. It actually made me tear up. Um, I thought it was a, a good message that... Um, you know, bucked against the uh, model minority myth and the tiger mom that Asian parents won't be supportive unless you do, if you're Asian and you go into um, a high paying job um, because the dad you know, it just wants to see his son happy. So I love that. Um, I will say critique. So we celebrate, <laughs> we say positive things and we say the critique. Um, the critique would be how much of this movie still depends on whiteness um, and the white gaze, G-A-Z-E, um, in terms of making the story and the movie relatable to a white audience. Why is it that Darren Barnett, who plays Tag, who is the, the picture that is used for the catfish, um, why is he considered so handsome? Um, must he be racially mixed? Must he be racially ambiguous to the point of passing as white? Um, also, why are the interracial relationships that are featured in this movie all with white people? So both of the brothers um, end up with white women and even his stepmom is white. So why? Like how much of this movie needed to have explicitly white embodiment to make it popular and relatable to a white audience? Um, all good points. Elena, I'll point out that there has been longstanding stereotypes about Asian men playing lead characters, that they are asexual or not sexy. That's what one of the reasons why Crazy Rich Asians was important in that aspect. So hopefully that that stereotype got broken in this film. But what Jenny says is absolutely also true. Yeah, what I'd like to say, it's interesting because Jimmy O. Yang and, and Harry Shum Jr., they're, they're veterans that we, that we met in 2018 mm-hmm. in Crazy Rich Asians. I feel like since 2018, the Asian American film universe just tilted sideways. If we can have a feel-good Christmas time love story featuring nerdy Jimmy O. Yang, who marginalizes hunky Harry Shum Jr. and um, 
and Hoppa Hunk, Darren Barnett. <laughs> the fact that we have, you know, we have the the nerdy guy, the actor who's always cast as the nerd, as our leading man, the romantic hero in this charming catfish story, uh, tells me that that we have come a long way. Um, it's interesting that in the in the film history of interracial Asian American white romance, it's always Asian woman, white man, 99% of the time. There are very few exceptions in film history. Interesting in this film, as Jenny points out, that the, the Asian American men have uh, have hot white girlfriends. Uh, I couldn't tell with the stepmother if she was white passing uh, Chinese American with blonde hair. I have no idea. But um, anyway, but Love Hard was an easy film, such a feel-good film to watch. And, you know, I think the reason why Darren Barnett gets cast is that we met him uh, just a year or two earlier in Mindy Kaling's Never Have I Ever. Mm. He plays the hot, he's the hot hoppa hunk. And, um, you know, it's interesting to see him back in that same role. He's being typecast for sure. Mm. <laughs> I should also note that this is huge leap for Jimmy O. Yang. I, when I interviewed him, he was just coming up from his HBO series. He, uh, I was interviewing him because he'd done a memoir at 30. Um, and, <laughs> um, and now he just signed with CAA, which is, as many people will know in the business, is a huge and quite successful agency to uh, represent him. So he is huge now uh, in ways that uh, I, I don't think he could have imagined from 2018. But there he is. I want to pay attention to something else. I love this piece, Huffington Post, about the rise of the Asian best friend. This is a little bit gets to what you were talking about slightly differently, Jenny. There are a lot of people that we hadn't seen before who are in the movies, but they're in the movies, as you say, through the white gaze. They are the friend. I think a lot of people will relate to that in the Spider-Man movies with the character Ned, who's played by Jacob Batalon, who is Filipino. People are so excited. Filipinos are so excited to see him <laughs> play that character. But, you know, he's a best friend and we can go on and on. There's many others to name in a lot of the streaming service series, of course. So, Jenny, what do you think? The rise of the Asian best friend is not exactly a compliment, but it is an opportunity for some actors to get seen. Yes. The additions that I'd like to emphasize, a, a very popular HBO show, uh, Sex and the City, mm -hmm. has been rebooted as And Just Like That. The Asian best friend here ends up being um, named, the character's name is Seema, and she's played by Sarita Chowdhury. And um, exactly what you just said, that she is Sarah Jessica Parker's character's best friend, Carrie's best friend. And in some ways, she is, they're trying, the writers are trying to make her fill the role of Kim Cattrall. Mm -hmm. Who played Samantha. Exactly. And mm -hmm. so I find that very interesting in terms of the Asian best friend. Um, of course, and just like that, the writers and the actors themselves have acknowledged that growing up in, you know, it's a, it's a show set in New York City, that they should have way more racial diversity than they did. And so they are being very intentional about bringing in as many, um, I'd say, secondary characters. Obviously, they're a trio and then all the other characters. Um, they're trying to bring in more racial diversity uh, there. The other thing I wanted to say in, in terms of best friends, um, and this is just became public today, is that the first trans character in a DC comic film is Asian. Mm. Um, and uh, she is Ivory Aquino, and she'll be playing Alicia Yo, who is the best friend, this is why it's relevant, um, of Batgirl. And oh. Batgirl mm. is coming on, yeah, Batgirl is coming on HBO Max. And um, she is an Asian trans woman playing an Asian trans woman character. Hmm. 
Wow, that'll be interesting to see. Yes. All right. What do you think about the rise of the Asian best friend, Elena? Well, my suspicions around this, this is an, this is an, an old trope. There was a hashtag movement a couple of years back uh, called Not Your Asian Sidekick. Mm. And, and I remember that very well. And I feel like, you know, it, I hope that we're not going backwards uh, with this sort of recycling of the Asian best friend. I do find um, that Sarita Chowdhury in, um, uh, and just like that in the Sex and the City reboot, she's maybe the best thing in this reboot series. Um, um, I like Che. I, I like Che, though. I like Che, too. Oh, yeah. Che's irritating everybody, though, across social media. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I might be the only person who's been watching and following seasons one and two of the Jennifer Aniston Reese Witherspoon show, uh, The Morning Show on Apple uh -huh. TV. In uh -huh. season two, there was an Asian American character played by actress Greta Lee. Mm -hmm. She is the president of the news division of, in that fictional broadcast network. But whenever Greta Lee appears on the morning show, she is nobody's best friend. Not Jennifer Aniston's, <laughs> not Reese Witherspoon's. I cannot, you cannot take your eyes off of her on that screen. So I, I hope that season three uh, brings Greta Lee back into the forefront. We, ne we need more of her, not less. She is one of the most exciting actresses, one of the best characters from this past year. But in general, the, is the Asian best friend up going backwards, going forward, even if the Asian uh, best friend is more prominent in more spaces? Where are you with that? My feeling right now is that, uh, based on our conversation, we are still hungry for representation. Uh, we are starved. And I think that the reason why many of these films did really well is that there's an audience, there's a, there's a white audience, there's a, an audience of color that are excited, that are hungry for these kinds of diverse representations. So right now, please, I, I would hope that the Asian best friend isn't the only um, the only character, stock character type that we're going to see, because I think we've moved way past that. And the films that we've been talking about uh, this hour show us that, you know, we've um, um, we've rendered the universe of Asian representation much uh, uh, in ways that are much more diverse, much more complex, and way more interesting than sidekick partner. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to note that in a study that uh, examined uh, 79 primary and secondary Asian American and Pacific Islander characters uh, in films of 2019, uh, the results were that in 200 of the top grossing films of 2018 and 2019, they found that almost 75 percent of tertiary or minor AAPI characters spoke five lines or less of dialogue. So if you put that in the context with um, moving up to some prominence with way more lines of dialogue, I, you know, Ned in, in Spider-Man, as I've suggested, is I've seen in the last two, I haven't seen the most current Spider-Man, but in the last two in which he was featured, he has more and more space in the film, um, even as a as a uh, Asian best friend. And you've noted the other people who are taking space um, center stage. So there you have that. I uh, want to point out that something that everybody was excited about, and I believe you all were too, was Cowboy Bebop. Uh, it was canceled after uh, one season. This was a Netflix live action series featuring John Cho. Yum. Um, based on a <laughs> beloved anime series. Oh, did I say that out loud? Okay, let's take a, let's take a, <laughs> let's take a listen from uh, the series. This is Cowboy Bebop. So what brings you back from the dead? 
A week ago, I did a job. A bounty. I had a partner, believe it or not. He know what you used to be? Will I ever see you again? They tried to kill me, Anna. If you need to find me. I go by Spike Spiegel these days. So this was a space uh, western. It had uh, 10 episodes. People were so excited. I believe both of you were really excited about this. <laughs> and then it went away after, this is not my cup of tea, so I didn't watch it. But John Cho, come on, um, as the lead, was 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 exciting everybody. What do you think happened there? And was it worthy of having been picked up again after the first season? Jenny, I don't know about you, but I have to confess, I could not get past maybe one and a half episodes, and I'm the biggest John Cho fan on the planet. Yeah, so, and I think what you're um, both saying actually uh, leads to what uh, I want to assert, which is that moving anime into live action movies is mm, tough. Mm. And that's the biggest problem. It's It has nothing to do with John Cho, which we, you know, all three of us agree we would love to see more of. Even that cute little corgi that's in all the previews and trailers for this show. It's, it is extremely difficult to translate, to move anime into live action that makes sense. I mean, there are conventions of anime that just don't lend themselves very easily to um, live action. And that's the reason why, in general, if you look at, because a lot of live action movies have been trying to do this um, based on anime, they tend to fail, which makes me question, who is the audience for this anyway? I think people who dig anime are happy with it being anime. Yeah. I don't think there's a clamoring to be like, let's turn this into live action because we've seen time and time again when it happens that it fails commercially um, as well as uh, as well as popularly. Elena, I just thought that they were looking for a kind of exciting project for John Cho, frankly, and nobody thought about the anime problem. Uh, that, right. What do you mm-hmm. think? Yeah, I I don't know why all of the elements, talent, coolness, all of that was there. I don't know. I don't know why Cowboy Bebop just failed to launch. I don't understand. Okay, but well, I, I couldn't get aboard. Well, he he's available to be hired now, so that's that's the big news. <laughs> Somebody pick him up. <laughs> Let me go quickly to uh twenty twenty one film The Matrix Resurrection, starring Keanu Reeves. Some people for a long time had no idea that he had any Asian heritage, which was interesting when that finally came out. People may know that there's a series of Matrix films. They decided to reboot it with this film. Here's a clip, and then we can talk about it on the other side. Where are we? Tokyo. A moving portal makes it harder to track us. Seek is the best of them. Portal's clean. We do no shadows. I don't remember this. So I've not seen this, um, and it's gotten really mixed reviews. Some people just hate it. Um, (laughs) And and, uh, they love the other Matrix uh, films, thought it was excellent. But I think it's they hate it because of the premise of what they were trying to do in this reboot. Um, But the bottom line is that Reeves was really the the central character, and still is in this, and has made quite a splash. So I don't know how you would assess it in this moment in time of... Uh, Asian-American representation. Elaine, I'll start with you. Well, hands down, for many decades, Keanu Reeves has always been my number one Hoppa heartthrob. And (laughs) uh, 
I, it never occurred to me that most folks or many folks didn't even realize that he was that he was mixed race Hapa Asian. Um, I have to say my disclaimer is that anything that Michelle Yeoh stars in, small screen, big screen, mm. and anything Keanu stars in, small screen, big screen, will be uh, will be on my good side. Yeah. Um, I, I can't even remember the plot for Matrix 3. Matrix 1, brilliant. Mm-hmm. Matrix 2, not bad. But I uh, Matrix 4 made me the happiest person on the planet during the Christmas holidays. That was the only film that got me into a theater with two masks sitting there in the dark just to get my dose of Keanu. Okay. All right. What do you say, um, Jenny? I think that it's a good question. What shows, what movies kind of get that reputation of, here's a movie with an Asian lead. Because mm-hmm. I, I don't think that uh, The Matrix 4 was ever marketed in such a manner. It wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that's interesting. Um, I think people expected Matrix 4 to be like Matrix 1. And mm-hmm. that's just, that is, that no way. There's no way. Like So I think that's part of the reason why I think 4 did not, it just didn't have the splash, the the impact that they were hoping. It is interesting when we get to have, we're privy to interviews with uh, Asian identified actors and how they talk about bringing their Asian-ness to their characters. And so, you know, I was happy to read that Keanu Reeves was very respectful about Asian martial arts inclusion. It makes me want to do a parallel to the Book of Boba Fett, Mm. uh, for those of us who are Star Wars fans, because also there we have two leads of the AAPI diaspora who are the leads. Like there's um, Tamara Morrison, of Maori culture from New Zealand, and there's Migna Wen. But that's definitely, again, not a show that's advertised at all as, hey, here are two AAPI leads. Hmm. Nope. Interesting. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, Boba Fett himself, the, the, the actor playing him, talks about, just like Keanu Reeves, how he was trained uh, in the art of haka, which is the warrior dance. And he also was trained in how he was to use a staff in stick fighting. And that, that's how he brings his Maori culture forward. And I, and I appreciate that. Hmm. All right. Now, here's the point where you two get to say what you're looking forward to, some projects that are coming up uh, that you think will continue to, in a positive way, expand the kind of Asian representation we've been seeing in movies and films. So, Elena, what are you looking forward to? Thank you, Jenny, for bringing up the, the book of, of Boba Fett, because <laughs> I would say... Please keep all eyes on Ming-Na Wen. And remember, Mm -hmm. Ming-Na Wen, she is our connection to the dark ages of the Joy Luck Club. (laughs) Way back when, she was an ingenue actress. She was also the voice of Mulan, okay? Not live action, but the great animated Disney version. Uh, Ming-Na Wen now is, as a mature actress, who still looks like she's about 21 years old, as a, mm-hmm. as a warrior. Now, that's the type of Asian sidekick of Boba Fett that mm. I can get behind. Keep your <laughs> eye on her. And um, uh, I, think, I think it's very clear from Squid Game, coming on the heels of Parasite, that the future belongs to Korea in terms of films, representations, pop culture. I think the future belongs entirely to, um, to uh, Korean culture. Hmm. All right, Jenny. So I would love to see some movie, some documentary, some show that shows uh, Asians, Asian American communities in the South of the United States and to have people that look like me and sound like me. That'd be great. I would also like 
movies and shows that should have Asian characters to have them. Uh, my example here would be where's the Asian presence in the reboot of The Karate Kid? You know, Pat Morita as Miyagi, he is referenced a lot in the reboot, but where's actual Asian embodiment? They brought back many of the original actors. Um, they could write a role for a niece, a nephew, uh, a cousin of Miyagi. And I want that. Last, there needs to be a movie that discusses the increased anti-Asian violence, anti-Asian racism that's occurred uh, concurrent with COVID. We need to have more movies that instruct the American population about racism that is targeting Asian and Asian Americans. Um, there is a documentary that's out now called The Six, and it's about uh, the eight Chinese passengers of the Titanic. Hmm. And that's the thing is like, most people don't even know that there were Chinese folk on the I Titanic. No. Yeah. Um, and what are, what are their stories? And so bringing the history to, you know, the more recent past to uh, now about how anti-Asian sentiment is affecting um, all of us even today. Well, I would leave you with a new film that's been announced with an actor, Kenny Liu, L-E-U. I'm not sure that's how it's pronounced. Um, he's the lead in a movie called A Shot Through the Wall, which is inspired by the story of the former New York City police officer, Peter Liang, who was convicted of criminally ne negligent homicide in 2016 after killing unarmed Akai Gurley, who was black, at a Brooklyn housing project. The young actor himself has said this movie is the next step past representation and into inclusion. So we'll be talking about that the next time uh, the three of us get together. But I did want to put it on the table uh, so people will be looking for it. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. I love our getting together. <laughs> I do too, Thank I must you. say. <laughs> Thank you, Callie. Thank you, Jenny. What a pleasure. <laughs> Elena Kreef is a professor of women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. She specializes in Asian American visual history in photography, film, and popular culture. Jenny Korn is a fellow and the founding coordinator of the Race and Media Working Group at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH. Produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Vanessa Handy is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.